Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read, produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS. This is Know Thyself. A Civilization That Questions Its First Principles by Peter Toneman from the issue of the 12th of May 2023. Peter Toneman teaches Greek and Roman history at Wadham College, Oxford. During the First World War, a woman approached the classicist Andrew Gow in the street, handed him a white feather and asked tartly, What are you doing to defend our civilization? Madam, Gow replied, I am that civilization. Boy, those were the days. The sea of Western civilization, to misquote Matthew Arnold, was at the full, and round the North Atlantic shore lay the folds of a bright girdle furled. A hundred years on, who would have the gumption to identify themselves as the vessels of civilization, with or without a capital C? A few confused QAnon dupes wearing togas and Spartan helmets, a handful of self-proclaimed Stoics and Greek ultra-nationalists on Twitter, and, I darkly suspect, the amusing Mr. Jacob Rees-Mogg. Meanwhile, Nisha Max Sweeney, Professor of Classical Archaeology at Vienna, alumna of Cambridge and Harvard, sits in the reading room of the Library of Congress, looks up at the bronze statues around the dome of Moses, Solon, Newton, Beethoven, all the old Plato to NATO gang, and feels nothing but alienation and exclusion. The game is well and truly up. But I oversimplify. From a boringly institutional point of view, summarised by Max Sweeney as the ideals of representative democracy and market capitalism, a notionally secure state overlying a judeo-Christian moral substratum and a psychological tendency towards individualism. The columned edifice of Western civilization remains as solid as ever. What crumbled over the course of the twentieth century was a particular story about the mythical origins of Western modernity, pointing in one direction towards the Iliad, Socrates, and an enlightened imperial Pax Romana, and in the other towards the Pentateuch, St. Paul, and a kingdom not of this world. This mythical genealogy, reinforced by a remarkably coherent high culture that served, in various complex ways, 
to naturalize the dominance of a white European male elite is the subject to this lively and thoughtful new book. Despite its title, The West, A New History of an Old Idea, has little to say about the history of the idea of the West. Max Sweeney quite rightly pours cold water over Edward Said's attempt to trace the ideas of Western and Eastern socio-political blocs back to ancient Greece. But she is distinctly hazy as to when and why an idea of the West and Western civilization first emerged, and more importantly, exactly how it differed from older cultural constructs, such as Europe, Christendom, or whiteness, or more recent ones, like the First World, the Developed World, or the Atlantic Community. Most historians now reckon that the key moment was the rise of Russia as a significant European power under Tsar Nicholas I in the mid-19th century. The West was a handy way of moving the goalposts to exclude a state that was neither non-white, nor non-European, nor non-Christian, but definitely not quite like us. As Georges Verouxikis has argued, the first European thinker to articulate a clear idea of the West as a distinct cultural formation was Auguste Comte in the 1840s, who saw France and its immediate neighbours, but particularly Ilva Sondier, France as the spiritual avant-garde of humanity. Rukseikis's forthcoming book on the Occident will, I suspect, be well worth your time. All this is not Max Sweeney's concern. Instead, she sets her sights on the cultural imaginary of the post-antique peoples of Western Europe and colonial North America, and in particular how these Western societies have historically positioned themselves in relation to Greece and Rome. Her aim is to undermine what she calls the grand narrative of Western civilization, which posits that the origins of the West lie in a culturally pure and internally coherent Greco-Roman world, also asserting that this Greco-Roman world was the exclusive heritage of the West. No doubt these deluded grand narrators are still kicking around somewhere, but it may be telling that the only copper-bottomed contemporary example Max Sweeney can come up with is Rick Reardon's Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. In her introduction, she brandishes a quote from Roger Osborne's Civilization, A New History of the Western World, 2006. We hear time and again that Western civilization is something we've inherited from the ancient Greeks, but on closer inspection, this turns out to be a false sighting. What Osborne actually wrote was, we like to believe that Western civilization is something we've inherited from the ancient Greeks, and he went on to dismiss the idea as absurd. As Max Sweeney admits, all serious historians and archaeologists acknowledge that the cross-fertilization of Western and non-Western cultures happened throughout human history. Some readers may reasonably wonder whether this grand Homo Occidentalis sui Graecoromanus is made of straw. Still, on its own terms, the West does a fine job of showing that the old Kenneth Clarkish story of Western civilization, Phidias leaps fully formed from the head of Zeus, studies the arts of government with Julius Caesar, then hides out with the friendly monks of Skellig Michael for millennium or so, before being carried home in triumph by Petrarch, is as dead as poor old Mr. Gao. The West is structured around 14 miniature intellectual biographies of figures from Herodotus to Carrie Lamb. 
Not all of them are Westerners. Jinga of Angola, the Ottoman ruler Safiya Sultan, but all serve to illustrate the complex and contested legacies of Greco-Roman culture in and far beyond the West. One of Max Sweeney's key arguments is that non-European thinkers have contributed far more to the development of Western civilization than traditionally recognized. Sadly, she writes, the achievements of indigenous American, African and Middle Eastern scientists and philosophers and their contributions to the development of Enlightenment thinking in Europe were not widely acknowledged at the time. A hearty yes to the Middle Eastern and North African contribution, with the likes of al Karazma ibn Khaldun. But who are these indigenous American thinkers? Max Sweeney tentatively claims, following David Graeber and David Wengrow, in their The Dawn of Everything, published in 2021, that the Native American chief, Condioro, might have been an important influence on Rousseau's discourse on inequality. Graeber and Wengrow argued that Condoron's political thought was transmitted to Europe through the Baron de la Hontan's new voyages to North America from 1703, which ends with a dialogue between la Hontan and a Huron chieftain called Adario, in their view a mask for Condoron, in which Adario skewers a range of ethical inconsistencies in contemporary French laws and customs. Alas, this argument rests on air. The use of a fictitious wise and noble foreigner to critique civilised social norms is a literary trope that derives directly from Lucian's Anacarsis, a Greek satire of the 2nd century CE. The Anacarsis, in which the Scythian noble barbarian Anacarsis points out the absurdities of classical Athenian culture, is today little read, but was a key text for 18th century thinkers. These included Montesquieu, whose Persian letters give a spurious Persian perspective on Anxian regime France, and La Hontan's fictive Adario is certainly another example of the same trope. There is perhaps a certain irony in the fact that one of Max Sweeney's key examples of non-European influence on Enlightenment thought in fact turns out to illustrate the opposite. Those pesky Greeks and Romans, in this case Lucian, really do get everywhere. Just as in cricket, the success of listicle books of this kind, like A History of the World in 100 Objects, 12 Maps and 21 Women, rides heavily on good team selection. Max Sweeney's picks for her 14 characters are mostly sensible, and sometimes bold. Herodotus makes a sturdy opening batsman. Joseph Warren provides an unusual but thought-provoking spin on Roman Republican ideas in the American Revolution. And Carrie Lamb is an inspired choice as a tailender. More on her later. For me, the least successful selection is Livia, favourite granddaughter of the Roman Emperor Augustus. Max Sweeney's argument in this chapter, that the Romans trace their cultural origins back to the mythical city of Troy in western Turkey, is fair enough. But her choice of Livia to illustrate this theme as the symbolic linchpin of Trojan-Roman genealogical connections doesn't really fly. Max Sweeney rests her case on a Greek inscription from the city of Ilion, built on the ruins of Troy, which she translates as, in honour of Livia, on the line of Ancaeus, who is like the goddess Aphrodite, and who has produced the most and greatest contributions to this divine lineage. Unfortunately, her translation is badly awry, 
It is Livia's mother, Antonia, whom the inscription honours, and it is Antonia, not Livia, who is described as having produced the most and the greatest contributions to this divine lineage, by successfully bringing three children to adulthood, including Livia. A more serious problem with the West derives from Max Sweeney's choice to focus pretty much exclusively on the Greco-Roman strand in the founding mythology of the West. The paradoxical result is that she ends up reinforcing a very old-fashioned problematic of Western civilization, in which the leading question is how big our debt to Greco-Roman antiquity really is. The elephant in the room here is the changing and today precipitately declining role of the Judeo-Christian tradition as the effective core of Western culture. The impact, for good and ill, of the Abrahamic religions on the modern Western imaginary is incalculable. Someone could write an important book on the disastrous ramifications of the grand eco-narrative, stemming from Genesis 1.28, where God grants Adam and Eve dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Not God's finest moment, to put it mildly. This blind spot is most damaging when Max Sweeney turns to the civilizational thinking of William Gladstone and his voluminous, idiosyncratic writings on the Homeric epics. She attributes to him the idea of a struggle of races that spanned the whole course of history between Aryans and Semites. She says Gladstone singled out the Jews in particular as not making any contribution to the culture of the West. He wanted to expunge utterly the taint of Asian influence, and to create a past for the West that was purely European. In support of this, she quotes a passage from Gladstone's Address on the Place of Ancient Greece in the Providential Order of the World, an unlikely bestseller of the 1860s. Palestine, in a word, had no share of the glories of our race, Instead, they blaze on every page of the history of Greece with an overpowering splendour. Max Sweeney suggests that Gladstone's immediate and personal target might well have been his political rival, the Jewish-Christian convert Disraeli. All well and good, but do the texts quoted by Max Sweeney really support this Eurocentric reading of Gladstone's thought? The struggle of races, that he described in his vast studies on Homer, in the Homeric Age, 1858, was not between Aryans and Semites, but between two related Indo-European culture groups, the Persians and the Medes. Gladstone saw these two Iranian peoples as the ancestors of the Greeks and Germans on the one side, and of the Italians and Celts on the other. A deeply weird argument, but hardly one intended to expunge utterly the taint of Asian influence from the history of Europe. The passage from Gladstone's address looks at first sight more damning, but is it worth reading the sentences that come immediately before and after? All the wonders of the Greek civilization heaped together are less wonderful than is the single book of Psalms. Palestine was weak and despised, always obscure, oftentimes and long trodden down beneath the feet of imperious masters. Palestine, in a word, had no share of the glories of our race, they blaze on every page of the history of Greece with an overpowering splendour. Greece had valour, policy, renown, genius, wisdom, wit. She had all, in a word, that this world could give her. But the flowers of paradise, which blossom thinly, 
blossomed in Palestine alone. That is to say, Gladstone was arguing more or less the opposite of what Max Sweeney says he was. The obscure and inglorious Jewish people had actually made a greater contribution to the culture of the West than the Greeks had. I carry no particular torch for Gladstone, but Max Sweeney's misreading of his argument obscures its true significance and interest. One of the central problems in European thought between, say, 1500 and 1900 was how to reconcile two starkly contrasting value systems, the Judeo-Christian and the Greco-Roman. This dilemma stands at the heart of Machiavelli's The Prince, which in Isaiah Berlin's famous reading starkly exposes the incompatibility of Christian virtue and Roman civic virtue. Hebraism and Hellenism, wrote Matthew Arnold, between these two points of influence moves our world. In the visual arts, as every Tallahassee schoolchild knows, the two strands were brought together in Michelangelo's bold reimagining of the biblical hero David in the guise of the Roman Hercules. This is precisely the problem that Gladstone was wrestling with, how to reconcile his profound Christian faith with his conviction that the Homeric epics represented the ne plus ultra of humane letters. Gladstone's answer to this perennial problem of Western origins, namely that the Homeric poems performed a providential function in providing a social and political analogue to the spiritual lessons of the Hebrew scriptures, is no doubt freakishly odd. But to treat it as an attempt to expunge the taint of Asian influence from the history of the West is, I think, to miss the point rather dramatically. This is a pity, because when Max Sweeney gets down to the late 20th and early 21st centuries and moves away from her exclusive focus on Greco-Roman afterlives, she has fascinating things to say about alternative ways of mapping the history of cultures. Her final chapter on Carrie Lam is particularly thought-provoking, brilliantly exploring the very different model of civilizational history currently being promoted by the Chinese Communist Party. This argues that each of the world's ten great ancient civilizations, including Bolivia, China, Egypt, Greece, India, Iran, Iraq, Italy, Mexico and Peru, has its own parallel and internally pristine culture, not inherited or transmitted across time, but with a continuous existence uninterrupted from antiquity to modernity. And it rejects the Western model of descent or lineage entirely as well as the idea of cross-cultural influence. Different civilizations can and should engage in dialogue with each other, so long as they refrain from cross-contamination. As Max Sweeney convincingly argues, it was this conception of the history of civilizations, as different as could be imagined from her own radically cross-contaminated model for the history of Western culture, that doomed Lam's political vision of Hong Kong as a harmonious hybrid of East and West. Just as on a personal level, Lam had been forced to choose either her British or Chinese citizenship when she entered public office, the city of Hong Kong as a whole could no longer belong to both East and West simultaneously. Cultural transfer, change and merging was simply not an option. In the face of this monolithic alternative, rather wonderfully, the author finds herself concluding with a paean of praise for the foundational principles of Western civilization. Dynamism, innovation, and the creative reimagining of the past, these characterized the histories of Herodotus and the philosophizing of Al-Kindi, the poetry of Tulila 
de Aragona, and the speeches of Joseph Warren. What could be more Western than questioning, critiquing, and disputing received wisdom? Socrates himself could hardly have put it better. Maybe Nisha Max Sweeney is that civilization after all. You are listening to the TLS. This is Know Thyself, a civilization that questions its first principles, by Peter Toneman, from the issue of the 12th of May 2023. It was read by Martin Buchanan for Noah.